Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Um, and so their argument was like, you know, and they slept, you know, slept together in his constituency office, paid for by the taxpayer. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, Acting Editor of CapEx. This week it was my great pleasure to be joined by journalist Marie LeConte, whose new book on Westminster gossip lifts the lid on how things really work in the corridors of power. We sat down to chat about the power of WhatsApp, clashing political cultures and the fine art of coffee hopping. Okay, Marie, welcome to Free Exchange. Now, uh, you're here because you've written a book... Uh, a very good book, might I add, um, <laughs> called Haven't You Heard? Gossip, Power and How Politics Really Works. I mean, can you tell us a bit about the the genesis of the book and a bit about your own background? Because you worked as a, a diary reporter for a while, like you're quite, you know, ensconced in that world. Um, when did you decide to come up with a book and, you know, how was, how was the process of putting it all together? And so, yes, yeah, so as, you, as you mentioned, I was a diarist for quite a while and it's kind of, I guess, how... Um, not quite how I came up with the book idea, but how it all started, because I came into Westminster via a kind of slightly um, unusual route, because I feel like, you know, normally people might come in through the lobby, of like, especially in journalism, or, you know, kind of, like, I don't know, like, you know, junior political reporter, etc. whereas I very much came in by writing gossip, effectively, by working for the Evening Standards Londoners Diary, uh, at first as a kind of, like, normal diarist, and then um, after months of lobbying, my editor basically became the political diarist, um, which is not a title they officially gave me, but they basically said they were fine with me using it. Um, and, and, you know, so kind of like for a year and a half, that's basically what I did. So I would cover what happened in politics, but via the medium of going to book launches, going to the bars in Parliament, going to events, talking to people then, kind of covering all the personal and, the, you know, again, slightly gossipy behind the scenes, etc. So that's clearly like something I've always had quite a keen interest in. But I think even beyond that, so I kind of did that. And then after that, I worked as a politics and media correspondent for BuzzFeed, uh, which I, yeah, it turns out I didn't enjoy. Um, I didn't just enjoy doing straight political news. And basically, I think what I found is that I thought that what I was covering and what I was writing about was a lot more insightful when it was gossip than when it was just doing, you know, the, the political news of the day, watching the chamber, whatever. I felt like I had a much better grasp of what was actually going on when I was doing diary gossip. Um, and I feel like I was kind of giving my readers as well a better sense of what was actually going on. So I think that from kind of the beginning, I've always had this sense that, gossip and the kind of personal and interpersonal relationships uh, was what mattered in Westminster. So that's where the book idea came from, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting because often we, you know, people slightly dismissively refer to gossip as tittle-tattle or something like that. But what comes across in the book is that this is actually pretty crucial 
stuff. It's not the, you know, what you see on the telly is only, I think you say, it scratches the surface of the sort of thousands and thousands of interactions um, that go on every day. I mean, what do you think was, uh, what did you find most surprising when you were kind of researching the book? I would say, uh, so there's quite a few bits in the book about the civil service, and that was for me personally, I think the most interesting bit, because I, you know, I already kind of, you know, by this point knew how Westminster works and how Parliament works and, you know, and obviously how political journalism works, etc. So all the other bits of the book. But I'd not, because obviously, you know, because of the relationship, I think civil servants have with journalists, I didn't have as much of a, an understanding, I guess, of how civil servants really functioned within Westminster. And I think that, you know, I did have this idea of, you know, they're kind of like the grown-ups in the room, they're the grey suits and, you know, and everything there is a lot more organised, a lot more, you know, formal and so on. Um, And actually, so I ended up interviewing a number of civil servants, so all the way from quite junior ones to former permanent secretaries. Um, And it turns out the civil service is a mess as well. Um, You know, and is completely based as well on rumours, on what, you know, you think the minister may want because you overheard that X said in a pub, etc. And there are so many examples in the book, so I think, of civil servants basically... Because and because again, I'm sure we'll come back to that in a bit. But um, I guess the broad thesis of the book is that informal conversations uh, step in when formal channels don't work properly. Uh, and I think yeah, one of the main examples in the book, and at least the one I think I found the most interesting, is the lack of good communication between, especially kind of like mid-ranking civil servants and their minister. Um, and so what happens is that a lot of the time civil servants will kind of try and reverse engineer what they think their ministers want as policies and work on those. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So there's, there is an example, which I'm not going to spoil too much, but of effectively like sweeping NHS reforms uh, under new labour, but with one bit, so like one, some contracts in hospitals not being touched because everyone had been convinced in the Department for Health that Blair did not want those touched at all. And then there's this big meeting in number 10 to talk about all the big reforms and everything changing. Um, and yeah, long story short, Blair had never said anything about these contracts and definitely did want them reformed as well. And it's just been, oh, oh, but we thought, because we'd heard that, you know, X had told us that Y had said that, you know, you'd said you didn't want this changed. So I think, yeah, for me, that was definitely, I think, yeah, that finding out that the civil service is as much of a mess as the rest of Westminster was the biggest surprise. And yeah, I think for, especially for people who aren't in sort of uh, working in and out in Westminster all the time, they might be surprised at just how, ad hoc everything seems to be and a lot of things seems to be sort of done on the hoof and the other thing another thing that I found interesting in the book was about and certainly reflects from my own time in the lobby was how the kind of geography of parliament has actually shaped the way gossip gets told and and political operations so for instance you talk a bit about Portcullis House in the uh, in the book oh yeah but I mean I nearly that's going to sound so pretentious but um I nearly wanted to, the book to do a bit of sort of like psychogeography of Westminster um, because, you know, because again, and that, that's not really an original point to make, but the physical spaces we inhabit will always have an influence on the sorts of relationships we have with each other. Um, and, and that's particularly true, I think, of, of Parliament in general, of Westminster um, as well. I mean, at Portcullis House is really interesting as an example because it was... Like it's now the beating heart of the estate, effectively. You know, it's where people meet, it's where they have coffees, it's where they, you know, they plot a bit, I guess, it's where they have lunch. When it generally was just meant to be sort of like overspill room, mostly for like staffers to maybe grab lunch or something. But, you know, but that was that. It was never meant to be this massive space. But it just turns out that I think in 
Parliament never really had this kind of massive space, which is quite modern and does look like a canteen. And also, I think crucially, because I think everyone gets something from that, uh, is somewhere you can see everyone. Um, and I think yeah. it's really fun. Like, you know, I, I'd encourage anyone who's not quite of Westminster to try and somehow like go for lunch or a coffee there once to be brought in there by someone. Because the choreography of Portcullis House is really interesting. So you'll see, you know, MP sitting down for lunch. You've got um, some, you know, some journalists who kind of walk around like sharks, you know, waiting to see one MP leaving the herd and kind of going, hello, can I sit down with you for lunch? Um, you've got, so I think, and that's mentioned in the book, like one lobbyist who basically plays a game of who can bring me in because he doesn't have a pass, who can bring me in. And then from there, I'm just going to try and coffee hop with different people at different tables for as long as I can. Um, so I think it is a place that has become perhaps, yeah, w- w- one of the main spaces, I think, in politics, uh, which is quite odd. Yeah, that's one of those little things that maybe people don't know about is that you, you can't be in the palace without a a pass holder. And similarly, you talk about the, the stranger's bar and people do the same sort of thing, don't they? They sort of go in hoping to find an MP they can mm. cotton on to. It is such a way, you know, and I've, I've done that literally like in the past fortnight. But um, So strangers, for people who don't know, um, is a bar in Parliament where you have to be... So I can't remember who exactly. I think you have to be an MP, a clerk, uh, or a few other things uh, to buy drinks. So anyone can come in, but these are the only people who can buy drinks. And so you do find yourself, you know, being there more than enough times um but you do kind of find yourself brought back to being about 15 and trying to loiter somewhere trying to get someone who's 18 to buy you beers effectively like I have had to as you go see MPs I vaguely know so like 10 p.m going hi if I give you a 10 pound note can you buy me a beer please um but also but again you know that changes the dynamic entirely I think of how people interact with each other um, and it gives MPs, you know, it's very much like that bar is very much like MP spaces and everyone else can be there, but they're, you know, it, it is very much their space. And I think that influences the way people interact with them and how they interact um, with everyone else. I think you mentioned this um, as slightly akin to being at high school at some point. It definitely occurs to me that you're sort of, you're often having to try and kind of introduce yourself to people that you, uh, you know, it's in a slightly awkward fashion. <laughs> and, uh, mm. You know, and I mean, was there a moment when, when you were a diarist, was that sort of, sort of skill that you had to perfect over the, mo- the months and years you were doing it to kind of the smooth intro, if you like? <laughs> uh, kind of, but I think every journalist has to do it. So I think one, uh, one journalist in the book actually said, you know, the entire thing is that you need to find one thing you have in common with some MP or whatever to latch onto so you can chat about that a bit. And yeah, that's kind of how you build a relationship. And he was saying, you know, with one minister... I had nothing. I tried so hard and I, you know, eventually was, oh, I went to Catholic school. <laughs> you know, that can be my one thing, which is yeah. like such slim pickings. But um, so I think, you know, everyone, obviously as a diarist, I think it was slightly different in that. Because um, I think what's interesting with the lobby, um, lobby journalism and how it works, etc., is that, you know, it's, it's very codified. So if you're, I think the idea, like if, an, if you're an MP and you go talk to a lobby journalist and it's just like a chat in the corridor, you know, they will not report you know, on what you say, in, and especially if it's a conversation mm. that happened within the palace. With a diarist, I think you don't have that element of trust um, as, you know, brought to you by your profession. So I think you, you have to build that kind of sense of trust as a person, which makes it harder. But it's still, yeah, again, I think everyone does have that. And as you said, in it is very high school and you kind of go up to like quite the cool kid and you're like, hi, hi, you know, I'm cool as well. I'm cool. We can, we can be cool together. Um, and yeah, so it, it, it is... It is slightly weird because, again, I think at the end of the day, if we're all very rational about this, 
we're all in Westminster for a reason. So, you know, if you're a journalist, you want to talk to an MP to get stories. If you're an MP, you want to talk to a journalist to get the word out there. Uh, lobbyists, you know, that's quite clear what they do, etc. But it's never quite done that way. There's always got to be that layer of like, no, no, but, you know, we, we, we'd hang out even if we weren't in those jobs, even though both parties most of the time know that not to be true. But there's got to be this sort of friendliness to it. Yeah, it's always a strange one, isn't it? I think another thing that's interesting uh, is that tension between someone being a source and being kind of your friend um, and and how to negotiate that. I mean, do you think that is kind of... It's definitely a problematic sort of an area for, for journalists. Oh, it definitely is, and it is part of the reason. So, I, um, so I've been freelance for just over two years and I write features about politics. And part of the reason why... I didn't decide to pursue a kind of like career in proper sort of like political news reporting uh, is because I found that personally very hard. Um, I guess also maybe because I'm, I'm just quite <laughs> a naturally sociable person and so I make friends quite easily. And the problem was that, you know, once I make friends, I'm like, well, I don't want to betray my friends, yeah. uh, which yeah. is not ideal, you know, and which I recognise in myself entirely, which is why I kind of decided to step um, out of that. But it does become a weird thing because, because yeah, so on the... Because it's either you end up having some sort of uneasy friendship uh, with, let's say, an advisor, an MP. I think advisors are more interesting as well because MPs is quite, you know, again, is very codified. They're a member of parliament, you're a journalist, et cetera. But, you know, so like spads and pads and all of that. Um, and, yeah, yeah, so it's either you have this sort of weird friendship where actually they feel they have to watch everything they're saying around you at all times. And in that case, everything becomes quite stilted and becomes, you know, not very fun. Or so it's either that and it's uncomfortable for them or you cross that barrier and it's like, no, we are genuinely friends now um, and the advisor you know, like, will trust you and know they can say stuff to you and then you're not going to report on them. But then the problem is, you know, like, there's one thing I can think of, of. A mate of mine who told me about a year ago, you know, this story, he was like, obviously you cannot write this at all, but, you know, X and Y and Z happened. And it was a properly massive story. Like, it would have been, I think, one of the biggest stories of my career if I decided to, like, betray him and, you know, give it to, like, the mail or something. Um, but obviously I didn't want to betray my friend, so it put me, and he did tell me as a friend, not as a journalist, so it did put me in an uncomfortable position yeah. in the end. So I think, and, you know, and maybe I think, you know, better people than me have managed to work that line better. But I, I still find it to be a struggle, and I think that quite a lot of people do. I think it's particularly, we're coming up to conference season, and uh, the sort of, yeah, the sort of the pseudo-socialising of conference drinks parties was something that really sort of, made me want to leave the lobby actually mm. it's the, the sort of the uh the look over your shoulder you know yes this is uh so every pretty much any time that you go to a political drinks i think people especially if it's an up-and-coming mp or a junior minister <laughs> they're always kind of scanning the room behind your head yeah, there was one the literally time. yeah not that long ago i'm not going to name them but, uh, but again a very much sort of like very ambitious of like youngish um, MP and we were chatting at some can't remember what it was about some event and it was fine and I could see that basically like another journalist who's more senior than me was quite nearby uh, but was busy talking to someone else so I, was like, I can tell that that MP wants to talk to them and not me but that's fine we can have a bit of a chat like we know each other a bit and I swear to god so we were chatting and it was like a fine up pleasant conversation um, and the other journalists became free because they're sort of like uh, the person they were talking to left and they literally just mid-sentence I was mid-sentence just turned around and went to talk to that journalist and left me there. And it was like, oh, come on, come on. We both knew what was going on here. I knew I was the placeholder, but go on. (laughs) Let me finish my sentence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And what do you think, uh, when you were writing the book, were you conscious of, you mentioned at one point that if, if you're reading this, you're probably interested in politics. But were you conscious of how it might be perceived by people outside politics? 
Um, it was very much uh, written. I mean, I so the main thing I think about the book for me is that I really wanted it to be that I really wanted it to be very accessible um, because I think that, you know, even as someone who obviously massively cares about politics and has been working in it for several years, there's quite a lot of books about politics I want to like, but I was just, you know, very dry or trying very hard to be sort of like very clever and like, oh, you know, you don't like this book if you already have this amount of knowledge about politics or like, you know, you'll get these references, etc., which I don't find particularly interesting. Um, and, and so I kind of, because I guess, yeah, the basically the moment that I think ended up being the slightly eureka moment in terms of like, you know, why I wanted to write a book and what I wanted the book to be about was kind of that line between before coming into Westminster as someone who obviously like knew about politics, followed it closely in the papers, was on Twitter, etc. Um, and thinking, okay, well, I, I know how this works. It'll be fine. Like, you know, I can come into Westminster. I'll know how this works. And then kind of coming in over the first few months being like, whoa, turns out I knew nothing about how politics really functions in this country. And it's kind of that, you know, and the book is very much like in the first whole part is kind of mapping out the first few weeks and months of someone coming into Westminster for that reason. So, so no, no, I, I mean, the book is kind of hopefully, I mean, hopefully obviously, you know, I want it to be interesting to people who work within the bubble and know it quite well, but I did want it to be mostly for people who have a keen interest in politics, but, you know, don't work around it and will probably never work around it, but want to find out how everything works. And I think it comes across that uh, you seem keen to stress that, you know, these are just people and that, you know, I'll start that again, actually. Um, (laughs) And, I mean, do you think that the public's perception of politicians, there's certainly an anti-politics mood, not just in this country, but elsewhere. Do you think if they knew a bit more on reading this book, do you think their impression of it would be improved or, or not? Well, so if you'd asked me that a few weeks ago, I would have said, yes, I think so. Like, I didn't want the book to be a sort of, like, you know, defence of the bubble. Um, but I did, I don't know. But, but, but you know, it's, it's kind of a call for, I guess, slightly more compassion. And, and yeah, and again, the understanding, because um, it does come up in the book quite often, um, that, you know, everyone who works in politics is a person um, and people are flawed. And, you know, no matter how good you are, how clever you are, how well-intentioned you are, you will you will be flawed because none of us you know are perfect, um, but at the same time. So there was a, I saw a review um, recently on a website that said you know that was very complimentary and very nice and said you know I learned a lot like from this book because I don't know that much about how politics really works. Uh, it was really interesting, blah blah blah, um, and it's convinced me that SW1 needs to be raised to the ground and sort of like set on fire and like we need to start it all again from scratch. And I was like, oh, that's not what I had in mind when I wrote it, but uh, but fine. <laughs> it's a view, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, no. So, but but I, I do think that you know, as, as you kind of um, mentioned, there is this. I mean, distrust obviously a politician, but I think this gap between politics and the public at the moment on many different issues in many different ways. Um, and I do think that yeah, slightly greater understanding of how stuff works may help a tiny bit at least, um, kind of like bridge that gap. And yeah, I think it's better than this sort of thing. And examining the mechanics of how stuff really kind of it gets more into what people's personalities are than kind of a sit down with Piers Morgan or the One Show, mm. you know, with the Prime Minister going, "Oh, which uh, you know, what's your favourite jacket?" <laughs> or something like that. I mean, um, I wonder how, in terms of political, uh, let me start again. Actually, it's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. 
Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In terms of tactics and the kind of political game, how important do you think this kind of rumour mill is compared to just having a plausible leader, a good strategy and good policies. Do you think it's a kind of sine qua non or it's something that adds to an existing good package? So I think you can probably get to the top uh, without really, really using gossip. So I think that, you know, interestingly, because obviously as I was writing the book, uh, Jamie Corbyn was the leader of the opposition and Theresa May was prime minister. And these are two politicians who don't partake particularly in kind of parliamentary socialising and plotting, etc. So that was quite interesting, but I think they're both kind of exceptions to the rule. So you can certainly do it. I think if you do it that way, you play in hard mode, um, effectively. Mm. Um, and also, you know, and also I don't think it always works. So, and, and I'm sure kind of that they'll both be looked um, at again, so both Corbyn and May, as leaders who... You know, as leaders who I guess were very much of their time and probably would not have risen to power if it hadn't been for those very particular circumstances for one and yeah. the other. Um, so no, I do think you need it because again, you know, and, um, and that crops up in the book again and again, but MPs don't always vote, you know, because they because of the policies they care about or, you know, whether one person agrees with them on X area or whatever. Like, it is quite personal as well. And I think, you know, leaders rise and fall based on how they treat their MPs and, you know, who their friends are, who their enemies are, etc. So I do think it is something you need, at the very, very least, to be conscious of. Um, so, you know, it is... It is um, so, you know, it, it is definitely important. I think it's also... And you sort of touched on it there. Like, if Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May have a weakness, it's perhaps a lack of kind of personal sensitivity to how things are being perceived and that... Being good at the informal side of things implies other things about you um, as a politician. Um, you know, entirely. And I think, um, I can't remember who said it, um, but one of the people I interviewed um, in the book made the point that the informal matters so much in politics because the only two things people want to know and need to know about you um, in Westminster are what sort of person are you and what do you really want? Um, and that's basically that. And, you know, and if you can figure that out about someone, you basically know them and know them well enough that you can work with them and get close to them, etc. Um, and I think, yes, yeah, so like your character as a person matters a tremendous amount, which is why. Because I've had people ask, you know, um, what's different about gossip in Westminster when every office, you know, will have gossip, etc. And it is because I think gossip matters a lot more. 
uh, because again, the personal personalities, people's personalities and what they want, their aims and their character is, you know, is what at the end of the day will quite often make or break them. Another thing that really comes through is that however well-informed you are, and you know there are some fantastically well-informed, ear-to-the-ground, shoe-leather political journalists out there, even they are only getting a fraction of the uh, sort of the, the net amount of gossip in Westminster. I know, totally. So I try to ask uh, a number of... Uh, I'm trying to... Yeah, I try to ask a number of spads, mostly, and some other, so like political people, you know, how much gossip do you think, like, how much information do you think journalists end up getting? Um, And they all guess sort of like different bits. So I think it was between 5% and 30% of, you know, how much journalists actually know. Um, So I think, yeah, there's two things. A, the amount of stuff that actually doesn't go out. And I think Miranda Green, um, who's um, a former Lib Dem advisor and then uh, went the other way around. There's now a journalist for the FT's having seen both sides. She said, you know, it's actually quite spooky how much never makes it to the press. So I think there's that. But nearly more interestingly, there's the amount of stuff that journalists kind of know about or can't quite stand up or have yeah. heard but don't really know what to do about it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, rumours, again, like a lot of political journalism, like so much of political journalism is basically, you know, someone telling you in a bar, over coffee, whatever, by the way, you know, it's not necessarily the main item on the agenda, but, you know, just at the end, like, by the way, you know, I heard that, I don't know, X, like, XMP is a creep, for example. Um, but, like, it's not from me or secondhand, but, you know, I kind of, like, it's in the ether. And then what do you do as a journalist? So I think there's so much that you sort of know, or you maybe know, but you can't quite stand it up, or stuff that you definitely know, but there's no way you can actually publish it. So there's a lot of information that kind of travels around and never leaves the bubble. So not necessarily for sort of, like, nefarious reasons of, like, the elites protecting one another, but just because, actually, a lot of the stories, like, a lot of what counts as stories in politics it's really hard to stand up and to actually publish in a paper and be sure that you wouldn't get sued over it. We're seeing the result of all these kind of interpersonal relationships playing now out now at the highest level. I mean, it's not... You see the odd comma about it, but, I mean, what, to what extent do you think these kind of personal schoolboy, particularly among the Tory top brass, how much of that is influencing the way that sort of British political history has been played out in the last few years? And I think obviously it entirely matters if you look at the kind of triangle of Gove, Cameron and Boris, you know, and, and which is basically like if you read Tim Shipman's books, a lot of, uh, lots of them are basically on those relationships. Um, and actually, and so I spoke to him, he's one of the people I spoke to for the book, um, and he did argue that, you know, if you did not know about actually all the so-called gossip and all the personal, like interpersonal relationships within people at the top of the Conservative Party, you would have been completely dumbfounded by what happened at every single stage. So I think, you know, it does matter entirely. Um, when you look as well, I've always found that quite interesting, the that Osborne and the absolute hatred he has for Theresa May, um, as you can see in his many, you know, like in the um, many Evening Standard um, leader columns and cartoons and everything, you know, back when she was PM. And that that's clearly something that started out in the cabinet as well. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe in a different world, actually, he could have got behind her, but he didn't because clearly, you know, some stuff happened there, like, besides the fact that obviously she sacked him. So I think kind of nearly everything will have a touch of the personal to it. I mean, we mentioned Jeremy Corbyn earlier there. Do you think he, do you think his rise has kind of overturned the conventional wisdom about needing to have, like, a good network and all that kind of thing. If you can, because we, you talked about him, him getting elected at a certain time, but it's like he's almost consciously bypassed the whole Westminster bubble and just kind of gone straight to the public in a way that other politicians maybe haven't. 
So yes and no, I would argue, and this is very much like that's actually quite separate from the book, but is um, something you'd quite like to write about at some point, actually. Um, but I think, you know, they, there are networks around Jeremy Corbyn, there are social networks, um, is that they're not the ones in Westminster. So from very early on, you know, you had, and especially because I think a lot of the networks had been built around the student protests and anti-cuts protests in 2010-2011. So a lot of those people kind of got to know each other then and marched and organised for direct action, etc. Then those networks kind of like dormant uh, for a bit because they didn't, you know, they didn't have much to do uh, because Ed Miliband was leader and so on. And then once Corbyn became a possibility, all of that came back up. So you definitely did have, you know, kind of... So again, there was not necessarily as Westminster-based, but he definitely had all of those people... Uh, around him, most of whom all have the same drama that you know that we see in yeah, any other yeah. sort of like campaign team or kind of you know outriders etc. Um, and some of it occasionally sort of like bubbles up on social media, but I think that we see less of because because again I think those people don't necessarily have the relationship with journalists that other you know leadership teams or whatever would have. So I do think that he does have he does have those people and there's kind of, you know, there is that, but there is the Corbyn bubble as much as there is the Boris bubble, et cetera. It's just that it's slightly sort of off-centre and not, again, yeah. and also not physically in Westminster, which, um, as we've talked about, is an important thing. If anything happens within, you know, further than a 15-minute walk away from Parliament, no one will ever find out about it. Uh, right. so. I think that, and something that else that comes across is this idea that, it's not like we refer to a rumor mill as if it's one solid mm. thing, but really it's like mapping a hundred different spider diagrams on top of each other. Because, like you say, like some of these people have relationships that go back to school, even a mm. lot of them from university, which is a product of our kind of quite closed off red brick, you know, mm. 10, 12 universities basically supply the entire political yeah. class. Um, well, yeah, and I think that's um, that's why, and it's mentioned quite a lot in Haven't You Heard, but. Um, so I think that is the whole thing about known unknowns and unknown unknown unknowns. So, you know, so there yeah. might be, you know, people um, that I you know, I, I know they're sort of like mates, or I know they clearly get along or whatever, but I don't know what they're talking about, what they're plotting about, what their secrets are. But then beyond that, there are so many people who I don't even know, you know, might be friends, because again, maybe they went to university together, or maybe, you know, something completely random happened, like they met when they were 21 at a house party, and, you know, long story short, they're still really close mates. So there's a lot that you don't know, but you don't even know, you know. Um, and, you know, and again, so I remember, so one friend who's a former Labour advisor and we went to this event together um, and she bumped into this Tory minister and like, big hug. And they were like, oh my God, have you been in so long? And I was like, what? Um, and yeah, it turns out, you know, they were housemates at uni. Um, and so there's so much of that. So, you know, I completely agree. I think that you can never get a full picture and what's uh, made it even harder, I think, um, is the kind of WhatsApp supremacy in SW1 um, and the fact that at least for quite a long time, you could see like physically who was speaking to whom. So, you know, in the parliamentary bars, in the tea rooms, in Potcullis House, in wherever, in the Red Lion. Um, but now you can have lots of people kind of plotting and talking to each other quite a lot. But you, you wouldn't even know these groups exist. And we haven't even mentioned Twitter, which has obviously multiplied the sheer volume. It's multiplied the volume and probably watered down the quality <laughs> of gossip mm. over the... Particularly in the last sort of four or five years. I think when it started, it wasn't quite as you know widespread mm. in, in Westminster. Well, I think, yeah, it's the combination of Twitter and WhatsApp. And um, so here's the point made by um, Jim Walton, I think, um, the media editor of The Guardian, who said that Twitter and WhatsApp are killing uh, double sourcing in Westminster. So his point being that... So normally, you know, the way you, you hear a story, I don't know, something happened, and you hear it from a Tory MP, and you think, okay... 
that's once you know one person has told me that I need to find somewhere someone else, preferably either from a completely different wing of the Conservatives or from another party altogether, to see if they'd heard that as well. And then you know, it's, if they have, is double source, etc. The problem is that stuff travels so quickly now that you can and I've had it before but you know you think you've double sourced a story as a journalist but actually you've talked to two MPs who are just in the same WhatsApp group and they've just heard it from the same person in the same WhatsApp group um and because yeah because things just travel so so fast and obviously an MP is not going to say to you that unless they're close to you say oh yes no we've all heard that rumor because you know X posted it on the WhatsApp group um so you do end up having to play catch up I think as a reporter quite often because stuff just spreads so, so quickly. And just turning on a related note, at the beginning of the book, you talk about how how this kind of, the way the British system works, a very informal convention-led, sometimes underhand way, is, is completely different to how things work at the uh, European level in Brussels. Maybe not in Brussels behind the scenes but in the way that decisions are made formally there and you've got 27 28 people you've got to get together i mean how much do you think that clash of cultures has affected the way that we've negotiated with the eu and and perhaps surprised them in how we expect to just muddle through Mm. a lot of the time i think it's completely you know besides like everything else i think that's not you know that that's one of the reasons why basically the entire brexit process has gone as poorly as it has because because you know everything you see in britain is usually it's based on fudge you know and it's based on like can we get that small concession or like you know maybe if you give a speech that you know uses those words then you know our supporters will think that blah 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 or you know let's just have one meeting about this and come on can we not you know we're all gentlemen here like you know can we not just like change that slightly etc so i think there was a big expectation and you can still see it now in the backstop you know, so and and it has basically become a joke now. Of you know, every other week you'll have someone saying, "But you know, or we could just put a, just just a small time limit on the backstop, just a, just a small time limit." And that's not how it works. So you know, the EU obviously because it has so many countries and it needs to deal with and factions within these countries, etc. Everything needs to be agreed, uh, ratified, printed in black and white. And once it's done, we do not got back uh, get back over it, um, etc. So I think it was a completely sort of like different. Um, like clash of the cultures and the EU as well has found it I think quite hard to deal with it um, so yeah no no so absolutely it is and then I think you know to an extent other national governments will always have that problem with the EU as as a body but I think Britain is especially bad for it. Now obviously you grew up in France before you came to the UK as a student am I right? Uh, yep. And I mean the difference between political culture over the channel especially in the way that journalists treat politicians, is kind of unbelievable to me. Because I remember it came out sort of decades after the event that Francois Mitterrand had an entire family on the side. I mean, mm-hmm. when, you, when you came to the UK and saw how things were done here, were you, was, it, was it a bit of a cultural shock or do you sort of already know that... Um, it sort of was. I, I was aware of a piece of like tabloid culture, which is not something that we really have in France. But I think there's... There's a few different aspects to it. So the first one is that, you know, and that doesn't just apply to politics, but I do think we have a very strong sense of a right to private life uh, in France, so whoever you are. And even in one of my favorite examples was when François Hollande was found by Closer magazine to be having an affair at the time. Um, There was a backlash afterwards against Closer. (laughs) <laughs> not against him the president. on his motorbike wasn't it uh, it was you know her. but there was yeah a backlash against the magazine because they were like well you know we don't want to know that's his life you know if he's still yeah. just doing it you know doing his job then we don't care we shouldn't have to care so i think that a culturally there's quite a strong sense that 
no matter, you know, even if you're in politics, you deserve the right to have a private life. Um, and then the second thing, I think, which is more, so that could be an entire other podcast, but I think the French press sees itself differently from the way the British press does. And I'm not saying there's a right or wrong way. I think maybe somewhere in between would be a good place to aim for. Um, but I think, you know, the French press can take itself quite seriously and I think takes its role in society and in democracy and the republic quite seriously. Even if, you know, obviously it can have a bit of fun but at the end of the day there's a kind of like you know great sense of you know the free press like you know yeah. one of the pillars of the republic whereas I think that in Britain which is not something I'd fully appreciated until I moved here there's a sense of you know what we're kind of rascals we're kind of here to have a good time and you know and make our readers have a good time and if you read like there's lots of really interesting books actually about the early days of the sun and the mail etc uh, which kind of prove that um and and you know and so I think one of my favorite bits um in the book is uh, so talking about public interest and actually, you know, the difference between gossip and news, but also how, how you know, how you publish effectively gossip. Um, and the answer is, you know, having talked to people who work at tabloids, we can sort of make the public interest angle happen if there's something we really want to publish. Um, and so one of my favourite um, examples is Simon Danchuk, who um, at the time was so busy, I hadn't... Simon Danchuk, who uh, was sleeping with this woman, and on the face of it, not really a story because he was single at the time. The woman was single. It was entirely consensual. She wasn't underage. Like, you know, it, it was entirely just, you know, man has, you know, relationship with woman. Uh, but the way they managed to cover it was because apparently part of their affair had um, happened in his office against his desk, I believe. Um, and so their argument was like, you know, and they slept, you know, slept together in his constituency office, paid for by the taxpayer. Yes. <laughs> taxpayers deserve to know what happened. It's a brilliant get um, out for any story, isn't it? The taxpayer's expense. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that, you know, you would never ever see that in the French press. <laughs> so no. th- there's a sense of mischief, <laughs> I think, that France doesn't quite have. And definitely, I think the French, um, I, re- I used to read Le Monde every now and again. They see themselves as almost a branch of the academy rather yeah. than... Uh, no, very much so, yeah. Um, all right, well, on that uh, salubrious note... We'll end it. Marie, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.